Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 4th, 2016. It is a Thursday. It is episode 1842 of the Survival Podcast. And that means that since it's a Thursday, this is the listener call show. This is the show that used to be the Friday, Friday, Friday show. Now I guess it's the Thursday, Thursday Thursday show, but no one says that. But it is a great show because you guys make the call. You call in to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and follow the formula. Formula, call from a quiet place. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have a couple bars. Make sure there's no background noise. Don't call from a car with the windows down or running a chainsaw or a weed eater or anything like that. Make your point or ask your question as quickly as possible up front in one or two sentences. Then give me your details. Trust me, you will be more likely to get through the screening process and onto the show if you do that. Today, here's the calls we're going to be covering today. One, what about platinum for your precious metals portfolio? And does Donald Trump want to nuke planet Earth with nuclear weapons? We'll talk about that. Should we have a segment called Jack Hacks on how to save money uh, a little bit here, a dollar here, a dime there uh, throughout the year and put a lot of money back in your pocket? I'll give you my thoughts on whether or not we can do that or not. And how much money should you spend for a gun just because you can get two more rounds in it than another gun? Do you really need that many rounds when it comes to your carry gun and how much is enough? Also, why I don't hold anything against those who vote. Actually, it's a call from a caller telling me why he thinks it's foolish to vote. I agree with much of what he says, but the main reason I'm going to play his call is because I want to make sure that you guys understand that if you do vote, I hold nothing against you. I don't blame you for anything. Uh, I don't think you're a bad person. I used to vote. Uh, I'm not going to blame you for doing something I used to think was important. Uh, we all are at different places in our walk, and I want to talk a little bit about that today so that nobody thinks I'm an asshole uh, to people who vote. Because I think the uh, if you vote, you're part of the problem. People are, well, they're kind of unrealistic assholes themselves. If you're going to tell somebody their vote doesn't matter, well, then how are you going to go around and tell them when they did vote they see? You know where that goes. Anyway, um, next, thoughts on composting the waste soil from microgreens operations. We'll talk about that. That'll be an easy, quick one. And what is the most likely disaster to happen? Long-term listeners know how I'm going to answer that one, but I think everybody will enjoy hearing it again or for the first time. And what about this Amazon item of the day thing? Some of these are private sellers. Can I negotiate discounts for you? We'll talk about that and how the actual program works with a great call from Jake. And if you're thinking, these are not the calls I want to hear, then pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK-866. 65-T-H-I-N-K, and leave the call you want to hear. And I'll give you a secret. I'll give you a secret. I get in moods, right? And sometimes my mood is I screen calls like from, like, you know, the oldest to the newest. And sometimes I get in moods where I screen calls from the newest to the back, right? Right now I'm in one of those moods where I'm starting at the newest calls in the email box. So if you wanted to be on next week, if you called Thursday, Thursday, uh, morning or Wednesday evening, it would be almost guaranteed that your call would at least get screened based on call volume. Anyway, I do get more calls than I can put on the air, but uh, you know, I, I do my best to get a good variety on every week. And if you want to change the variety, be part of the variety. Your call does count. 
And I try to, when I hear somebody that's never called before, definitely give them precedence and get them on the air. As long as you do what? Follow the rules. Follow the rules. Follow the rules. I'm telling you, if you've talked for 45 seconds and I still do not know why you have called, I am deleting your call. Not because I'm a jerk, but because I have only so many hours a day. Got to get the show out. Make the point up front. I promise you the whole call will go better. I am a professional. I do this for a living. Anyway, with that, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com, where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot, Slingshot, and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. And next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1842, because the episode is 1842. I have... Roll out the barrels. Here comes the polka. I have Escape from Kabul, which really is escape. I meant massacre. Um, and in other news, ether is first used for surgical anesthesia. What did they use before? Carbon dioxide. The Japanese had something, but the formula was lost in fire. So bite down on a bullet and hang on for dear life. And a lot of that was still going on in the Civil War. Man. Uh, William James is born. He will make the philosophy of pragmatism popular and become America's first psychologist. And Ambrose Bierce is born. He will be the author of The Devil's Dictionary, the source for many clever quotes on the Internet. Acquaintance, noun, a person whom we know well enough to borrow from but not well enough to lend to. Andro Ambrose Bierce. <laughs> you might want to get a copy of that. It's kind of fun reading. Anyway, roll out the barrels. Here comes the polka. I'm going to read that because I have a personal little quick story at the end of this one. Before disco was hot, before the shame of Lombada, the forbidden dance, before the Andrews sisters made World War II fun, there was the polka. Half-stepping into our hearts, the polka comes from Bohemia, which is a modern city, modern-day uh, Czech Republic. It has come to the United States with the new wave of European immigrants and has really caught fire. The world polka means half-step and probably refers to the lively way people dance to the music. The tunes are usually bright and happy and tolerable. Polka music must be tolerable because it will remain a major force in American music to the television era, and even the Germany Awards will keep a place open for polka until 2009. The Grammy Awards. Did I say Germany Awards. I got Germany on the brain there. The Grammy Awards will keep a place open for polka into 2009 when they will finally drop it as an awards category. <sighs> My take by Alex Shrugged. I grew up in with the Lawrence Welk show on TV. He had a lot of energy and an incomprehensible accent. He probably received from his Ukrainian parents. Ukrainians. It's always the Ukrainians. He managed to parlay his love for polka into a major television variety show. Every show featured a polka. People loved it. In fact, the official dance of Wisconsin is the beer barrel polka. Most people know it as roll out the barrels. It is still played during the seventh inning stretch of Milwaukee Brewers games. If you watch the movie Groundhog Day and you heard the Pennsylvania polka being played over and over and over again, strike up the music the band has begun. Unfortunately, with the passing of years, polka has lost much of its punch like fruitcake. It has become a punchline to jokes. But I like fruitcake. I admit it. 
and I like to hear the occasional polka, but I won't dance to it. You can't make me dance. All right, so polka to me, this is my biggest memory from polka, other than the church picnics. My grandfather loved this stuff. I mean, Ukrainian immigrant, uh, actually first-generation immigrant, came here as a very, very small boy. Too young to remember, actually, when his parents brought him here. But, you know, grew up with the very tight-knit communities of Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Georgian, Polish, German, Irish were the main groups in the part of Pennsylvania where uh, he grew up and where I did some of my growing up. And I remember every Sunday he would be sitting on this porch and saying how the place he lived was what he called God's country. The, the, just a beaut- It was really a beautiful place other than the coal mines. Uh, anybody that's been there knows what, you know, the central PA is just really is a beautiful place. It's a sportsman's paradise. And by then, he was kind of an old broken down man between mining accidents and black lung and smoking his, himself to death on top of black lung and, and having a real problem with alcohol. Um, he was kind of worn out, but he loved his polka music. And I remember he had this crappy little radio. Like, if you saw this radio, you'd be like, that's an antique. And it was like, to me, it was an antique in the 1970s and 80s, right? And it was AM only. And he'd sit that thing there, and he'd plug it in, and he'd put the certain station on, and they played polka all day on Sundays. And uh, not all of my memories of that time of my life are fond, but that one, even though I really don't like polka music, is a fond memory. And... I think it's important for those of you who are younger and still have people like grandparents or even great-grandparents in your life, take advantage of it while it's here because it does go away eventually. Uh, We are all mortal. We are all every day throwing away a marble that represents one day of the days we get in our lives. With that, let's get into the main topic and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Ryan from Missouri. I have a quick question for you. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on where platinum fits into a precious metal savings plan. Um, currently building about 10% wealth allocation in the precious metals, weighted at about two-thirds silver, one-third gold in dollar terms. Uh, I see many advantages and disadvantages with owning platinum and making it part of the plan. Uh, but when I first started saving about five to six years ago, platinum was about $100 an ounce more than gold. Now it's about $200 cheaper, uh, so I've started saving platinum, too, obviously. Uh, so what advantages and disadvantages do you see with owning platinum? What percent allocation do you hold, if any? And what rationale do you have to go along with any of this? Uh, it would be much appreciated. Thanks, man. Love the show. Um, the, the sum total of all platinum I own, other than the coating on the little ball bearing like objects inside the catalytic converters on my vehicles is zero. I own no platinum. Uh, technically I guess Dorothy and I own everything together and she may or may not have some jewelry that contains platinum. So that might not be entirely true, but when it comes to an investment portfolio, my investment in, por- in platinum is zero. This is not because you can't make money in platinum. Platinum is a commodity which gold and silver also are, uh, as is oil, as is gas, as is pork bellies, as is uh, corn futures. All of these things are commodities. They're, they're hard goods or they're representations of hard goods that can be traded on ups and downs, and you can make money or lose money on them. That, that's what they are. So the reason I don't hold any platinum isn't because it can't be profitable. It's because it's not in keeping with why I hold gold and silver in the first place. I hold gold and silver as a wealth assurance plan, and I do that in a hard physical property of something that can be uh, easily transmitted. 
I hold them for different reasons. I hold silver because it is easily parted out into many, many small, uh, low-cost units that can be converted to cash or used for low-cost barter uh, as needed, meaning that if you needed a few hundred bucks, you could go to a pawn shop and stay under the tax reporting requirements and do that a few times here and there. And, you know, I'm just saying, you figure it out from there, right? So it, it has that advantage. It's not a, a significant amount uh, in an individual ounce or even five or six ounces. It's enough to maybe pay a bill or to barter for something or to, uh, or to do just about anything with at a time when cash may be really weak. Gold, on the other hand, it does the same thing the completely opposite way, right? In other words, I can have enough gold to buy a car, a gun, and a boat and keep it in my pocket. So it's a lot in a little package. So they both have different uses. And when you add cryptocurrencies, especially using things like uh, mnemonic device wallets, which are completely untraceable, which are completely unstealable, unless somebody knows your mnemonic device, which means you used a stupid one, like don't use Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers or something like that, um, you then can transmit that wealth anywhere in the world simply by yanking it out of the ether of, uh, of nothingness. Um, so then you have this ability to use uh, hard currency and silver locally that is easily exchangeable, accepted as money by just about everybody in the world would say silver is worth money. Anybody smart enough for you to borrow with would, would see silver as money. And immediately fungible into a cash asset through coin shops and pawn shops and, and metal shops all over the place. Okay, And gold does the same thing, but again, lots in a little or a little in a lot. One or the other. And that, that gives you that flexibility and, and what have you. So into that, platinum is also equally as easy to exchange for cash. You can go down to the, the, the same store that you sell your gold and silver and they'll buy and sell platinum. They'll do a lot less business in it, but they'll do it. So it does the same thing there. But it is not generally accepted by most people in the general public as money. They don't, they don't think of it the same way. So if you had a, some, some work you needed done and it was going to be 300 bucks, and you say to somebody, would you take silver for it? Most working men, as long as they don't need cash right now, would say, yeah, yeah I'll take silver for that. Or would you take half of it in silver? Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, so you would expect it to be the same type of thing in a situation where it was actually a cash shortage. right? Platinum doesn't bring that to me. And even if it does, gold fills the, the role in precious metals of being the very high-value you know, lots of money in a small package, and it's much more acceptable to the general population as a money surrogate. So platinum doesn't have a place for me in that context. Again, that doesn't mean platinum's a poor investment or what have you. I just don't personally see the need for it. I also hold gold and silver long term. I don't even care, you know, with our silver and gold is put away, if the silver market drops 25%. I don't, it doesn't even, I really, maybe I should buy some. That's how I feel. Ooh, maybe I'll get a lot of silver in for MSB because now it, it costs less money to get it and it's on sale in people's minds. That, I mean, that's how I look at that. When it goes up, I'm like, okay, fine, yeah. It's not like woohoo, run out and dump a bunch of it. It, it. I don't manage it the way I manage a securities investment, which is once a certain amount of profits there, I take it and protect the underlying investment, right? I don't do that. I just, I, I, it's a set it and forget it long term commodity investment. 
Platinum to me, if I was going to play with it at all, would be, oh, here's a buying opportunity. I would buy it in an ETF, and the second it hit the goal, I would sell it. Or the second that it came back far enough that I had taken enough of a loss to not want to take any more, I'd stop loss against it. Uh, and I would I would follow it up to a point where, okay, uh, and now you can't leave stop loss orders just wide open, but... I would I would kind of manage it with short term stop losses that if it craw crawls back down it's going and once it goes over a certain thing boom it's sold I would handle it like I'd handle a stock and that doesn't mean it's bad it doesn't mean you shouldn't buy it in in pure metal form uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't hold it it just that's how I look at it now here's the the other side of the long term thing so I mentioned catalytic converters so the most valuable junk thing on any car is generally catalytic converter. It's an exhaust mechanism that you know your exhaust fumes go through and it, it, it reduces emissions. In there is a bunch of little little pellets and they're coated with platinum. And that's why if you take a catalytic converter to a scrapyard, you can get a, a good buck for it. That's the platinum. And they can soak it in some kind of thing that lifts the platinum off the little balls and collect the platinum and then reuse it. And, and the platinum's where the value is in that. The rest of it's just junk metal. So the largest growth sector in the United States in the automotive industry and across the known world will be, in the next 20 years, electric cars. And they don't use platinum. They just don't. Uh, fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells do. And doesn't seem to be going nowhere, does it? It's not a growth industry, not like just straight electric cars. So the primary industrial driver of platinum, in my view, is catalytic converters, which will be manufactured less and less, and there'll be sufficient recycled ones to see to the needs of the dwindling gas car market. And yes, the gas car market is going to dwindle. It's going to dwindle further and further. Automation, upgrades. I know electric cars ain't everything yet, but they are, if you just think about how far they've come since this show started eight years ago, it's unbelievable what electric cars are able to do. They give them another 10 years. And if, I'm not worried about a 10-year trend in a one-year investment. I am worried about a 10-year trend in a lifelong holding, which is how I see metals. So that's my other reason there. But, again, would I say that platinum looks like a buy right now? On the technicals, yes, but part of it is what I just said. The large traders know this trend, and they're starting to bank on it, and you're seeing the price curtail. Now, that may create volatility in the short term or the midterm, and you may find some buy and sell upgrade opportunities there using ETFs. Um, I don't think it'll ever be worthless. Uh, platinum, palladium, both are things you can add to your portfolio, but I would put them in small amounts. I would have them just because they're nice to have. There's something cool. Maybe pick up a cool, few, few cool, cool coins to add some uh, variety to the, your coins, especially if you have some set aside that you actually go through, maybe talk to kids about, things like that. But don't put much in it as far as I'm concerned. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Donovan from the Portland, Oregon area. Hey, I have a question for you about your... Uh point of view on, unfortunately, this election. Um, first off, before I ask the question, I'd like to just thank you for, you know, changing my perspective on uh, the whole Democrat-Republican thing. I was one of those people who took sides and got really involved in all that garbage. And I'd have to say, after listening to you, um, 
you've really changed the way I think of things, and I feel like uh, I've got a lot of weight off my shoulders, not having to worry about all that. Um, just a, very liberating, um, the whole anarchist uh, perspective. But unfortunately, we can't escape this most important election of our life, supposedly. Um, the question is actually about Donald Trump and nuclear weapons. Um, I'm not sure what the protocol is for that, but it sounds like um, the former CIA director, Michael Hayden, I'm not sure if he's a quack or if he's, you know, well-respected, but it sounds like he's got some reservations about Donald Trump and nukes, and Donald Trump seems to be um, very um, proactive or interested in how he can fire off nukes, supposedly. Um, and what, what, are the, what are the ways that that can be stopped if, in fact, he was the president and he decided he wanted, nuke, he wanted to nuke somebody? How, how could he be stopped or could he be stopped? sounds like there's not too many ways to stop a president from pushing the button. Uh, just your thoughts on that. Uh, sorry, this went a little long. Thanks, Jack. Love everything you do. Bye. Well, I'm going to totally leave the election and all of that out of this. This is another question that kind of pertains to voting in uh, a couple questions from now. But I, I will speak to the Trump nuclear thing. To me, this is another example of the media hates Trump, wants to coronate Hillary Clinton, and has blown something completely out of proportion. But Jack, he said he wants to nuke everything. No, 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 no. If you go read the transcripts like I did, he, he sounds like any president would sound about nuclear weapons. So, And, and there's, there's interviews, too, where he's spoken about this, and they're like, so would you take nuclear weapons off the table in a conflict in this, you know, Iraq, let's say? No, I would never take them off the table. Because you don't take something off the table, because that says to your, your enemy you won't use it, um, and, and therefore it no longer has the impact of being something that can actually prevent conflict. Now, that's the way I'm explaining it. He said it shorter, but that's what he's saying. Do you, th do you think if you would have asked Ronald Reagan, would you, would you take the use of nuclear weapons off the table and say you'll never use a nuclear weapon? Do you think he would have said yes? Do you think Barack Obama would say yes to that question? He might be a little bit more uh, tactile in the way he talks around it than Trump. But if, if we were going to say that we would never, under any circumstances, use nuclear weapons, then, well, hell, we should just get rid of them. Right? And, and what Trump said is, well, if, if we would never use them, why did we have them? It, it, it makes complete sense. It, it actually makes more sense than many other things the man has said in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And... I think that it's good for a prospective presidential candidate at the time that he begins to receive national security briefings to start asking questions about, well, this is the most horrific thing we have, okay? What is the protocol for this? Don't you think the president, the potential president should be asking about the protocols for the use of nuclear weapons? Do you think that maybe some of those questions are, you know what, I'm going to be attacked for not having quote-unquote experience, and I'm going to be in debates with Hillary Clinton, who's going to be claiming experience because she was head of the State Department and just let all the bullshit go around that because that's, that's a disastrous legacy without the email scandal. I mean, her record is shit, but it's marketed as, well, she's experienced, she was a senator, she did this, and we're going to get questions, no doubt, 
about nuclear weapon deployment protocol in the debates. And since I'm sitting here with people that are advising me about the nuclear arsenal, I should talk to them about what the protocols are. So I sound like I know what the F I'm talking about when I'm in a debate from, you know, three, four weeks or four months from now. Don't you think? I'd ask that question. If you're going to tell me, Mr. If you become president, we're going to give you the nuclear codes. I want to know everything about that. I want to know. That's one of the most important responsibilities I would ever shoulder. I don't know if I'm up to it. And I'd certainly want to know all of the intricacies around it. And asking about it is a sign of intelligence, not a sign that you want to nuke freaking the orphans or something. Or in the words of uh, Nelson from uh, from uh, The Simpsons, nuke the whales because you got to nuke something. All right. I think this is just totally blown out of proportion. And I've spoken on it, and I'm done with that little piece of stupidity because I'm sure the Ask Clown Circus will have a bunch more. And in case you're new to the show, if you think everything I just said means vote Trump, wah, wah, I think Trump, well, I'll save it for the next question or the question after the next question or the question after the next question after the next question. That's what it actually is. All right, let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Dave from the Sacramento Valley, California. Um, I just wanted to uh, run this by you. I was thinking about maybe some Jack hacks. Um, you know, if you could save me a dollar a day and a minute a day, maybe you could crank one of these hacks out once a week. Over a year's time, you'll save me nearly an hour a day, and you'll have, I'll have 50 extra bucks in my pocket. Um, and that's on a daily basis. Uh, just Food for thought. Um, it'd be cool to hear what you do in your daily life with all the efficiencies you create. You can get so many things done as a multitasker that you are. Um, I'd like to gain some more of that from you. Uh, thanks for all you do. I had a blast at PV3. It was a pleasure meeting you, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. You know, um, saving money, saving time. I guess I can help some with that. I, am, I don't think I am the time mastermind many of you think I am. I just work my ass off on the things that are most important. That's that's how I do it with time. Um, I have put a lot of permaculture thinking into tasks that I have to do. Uh, I'll give you an example of that that probably won't apply to anybody but me on the time thing. But every morning I have to make sprouts for the ducks and uh, feed them their sprouts, and I have to fill their pools. And what I had been doing so that I wouldn't forget is I go get the sprouts, I take the new sprouts out, I make the new bucket, I pour the old bucket in, I rinse it all out, so it's all ready to go, and I have an extra bucket, so when I feed them, that bucket's empty and put it back. And once I get that all done, then I come out and I do the pools, and I let the ducks out and I feed them, okay? And the pools take a long time to fill, especially two of the two of the like eight, ten pools I get every day are the really big kitty pools, and I always fill them first, so the reason I had started this whole process of completely taking care of the sprouts is way too many times I'm walking by the little alleyway where I keep the sprouts uh, at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm out doing my evening stuff after the show. And I look in there, and there's a bucket missing. So I fed them, but I didn't make more, and now I'm, I'm out of the sink by, you know, 10 hours uh, on the timing. Or I didn't even do that, and I find them the next morning, and I'm now a day off, and the ducks are pissed off at me but what i realized is i'm wasting time because what i should do is go dump all the pools move them to their new site throw the the, the hose in the big pool that takes quite a while to fill then go do the sprouts 
and completely finish those up just like I was doing, bring that bucket with me, go let the ducks out, take them where their pools are for the day, feed them their sprouts, that centers them on the pools for their daily activities, and then throw the hose into the second big pool. And by that time, the first one, that probably saves me 10 minutes a day just doing that. So I don't know that that's a jack hack that's universally applicable, but it's the thinking there. How do I function stack this so that I'm making the most use of my time? And I do think about that primarily, and this I think is my most important advice, in the things that you don't mind doing but you really don't want to. Like, I like spending time with the ducks every day, but by the time I'm done fooling those pools, especially this time of year, we're just filling the pools, I'm wringing wet with sweat, I literally come in, take my shirt off, throw it in the laundry, you know, get a towel, clean up, and put a new shirt on. I'm not going to take a shower because I'm going to work for the rest of the day and take a shower in the evening, right? But I mean, I, I literally, I'm going through two shirts a day just because of, of that. So I, I want to be done with it. So since when you, when you don't, when you like something when you don't really want to do it, then you procrastinate in it. So those are the areas you have to tweak the most for time. Now, um, here's one on, on money. Assuming you're not growing all your own salad greens, you're probably buying salad greens, and they're actually quite expensive, quite expensive. And if you're buying organic, and you should be, if you're buying from a store or you know, you're buying a local farmer's market, it can be even more expensive for mixed greens. And I love salads with mixed greens, arugula and, and all types of things. And even, even we do grow a lot of that stuff, but this time of year, it's just not worth trying. It's too hot. It's too hot here to do that shit. Maybe once my aquaponics system is installed, maybe I'll be able to grow through the summer. But right now, I just don't have time, so I buy salad greens. Well, they are expensive. And if you end up throwing them away because they're not quite good anymore or whatever, the ducks get a free meal, but, you know. And then you kind of want them to be good. So what I do is when I bring my salad greens home, I, you get that big clamshell they come in, you open it up, fill the sink with cool water with a plunger in it, Dump them in there and soak them. Rehydrate the hell out of them. Okay? Rehydrate the hell out of them. Just like those of you that do microgreens, it's kind of like when you harvest microgreens. You put them in cold water and you, you hydrate them. And then what do you do? You set, spread some paper towel out on the counter. You spread them all out in a single layer or thin layer anyway. And kind of, you actually put them in a salad spinner, spin them, then put them out on a paper towel. Let them dry. You want them hydrated on the inside. Dry on the outside. A little fan blown across them doesn't hurt if you have it. Turn the ceiling fan in, in, in the kitchen on. Or like me, I have this badass air conditioning vent that blows real hard in one spot. I sit them kind of where that is and just let them dry. Then get a Tupperware, the, the kind of big flat Tupperware is like you'd think you'd put like a, like a lasagna in, shaped like that. Drill little tiny holes, the smallest drill that you have, about three holes up near the lip toward the top. So if there is any moisture, it doesn't leak out the bottom. Three holes in both sides, so there's some airflow. Two holes in the long side ends, right up at the rim. Take a, a fresh sheet of paper towel, double layer of paper towel on the bottom, and put your salad greens in there and close that up and put that in the refrigerator. They will stay fresh longer, and therefore you'll throw less away, and you'll buy less, and therefore you'll spend less. It's a little extra time, but the quality will go up because you've hydrated them. And those greens are still alive after they've been cut, And when you put them in that water, you know, assuming that there's any dirt left on them, it'll take that dirt off and all go to the bottom of the sink and down the drain and away. That's good too. But they're going to suck that moisture up and you're going to have crispier, better salad. So it's a life hack. It's a money hack, but it's not a time hack. It certainly takes less time to just throw that thing in the refrigerator, but how much are you going to throw away? So how do you spend your time? So those are the types of things I could come up with. I, I maybe, I don't know about daily, but maybe one a week. 
Uh, if you'd be interested in more Jack Hacks, let me know in the, uh, the comments of today's show. Uh, and with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tom from Texas. Got a gun question for you. Is two extra rounds worth a couple hundred dollars? Details. I'm looking for a new concealed carry weapon, and I love the ballistics of the 357. I found a magazine-fed 357, the Kunan Classic, but it only holds eight rounds versus a standard revolver holding six. I'm a good shot and don't know how many situations I'd be in that if six ain't good enough, eight's not going to be any better. I know there's the issue of revolvers are bulkier and wider, but I'm not exactly a little guy, so I don't know if that's too much of an issue. So I'd love to hear your opinions and your thoughts. All right, thanks, Jack. Love the show. Okay, so I have, like, two different answers on this. My, my first simple answer is, if you find a three fifty seven revolver that carries comfortably for you, and you like it and you shoot it well, and you're comfortable with it, then I have no problem with you carrying that gun. None at all. Okay, and and, and I would say that you are... 99.9% of the time, just as likely to be able to defend yourself as necessary with that as with a freaking, you know, a, a double stack that's holding 16 rounds. Okay? 99.9% of the time. Now, here's the other side. This is what I'm obligated to say as someone that gets this type of questions and is expected to provide advice. You have to think all of this through at a higher level. What are the odds that you will ever draw your gun in anger? And it's very low. It's very low. It's, it's probably 99 to 1 right there. For every 100 carriers, there's probably only 1 in 100. It's probably lower. That, I'm not even saying fire, but draw your gun. There's a confrontation. You want to avoid it. Three guys, one guy rode in, three guys. He had his truck parked under an overpass. He's coming back, nobody else is around. They're standing around his truck, one sitting on it. They're waiting for him. They're like, what are you doing, man, whatever. And he's like, you know, just kind of back off. And uh, it's clear they mean him harm. He pulls his gun out, they freaking leave because they're not, they don't have one, right? That's, and you can say whatever you want about knives. If you're standing 15 feet away from me and you think that whole 21-foot knife rule works, by the way, this is only a try. This is, I'm not even going to go into this because it will take too long. This is only a try. You know that stupid knife drill where the guy has the knife out over his head and he runs at the guy and stabs the guy with the gun from 21 feet and the knife guy usually wins? Yeah, okay. Tell the knife guy to put his freaking knife away, okay, and let the gun guy go first and see who the hell wins. It's a stupid, stupid thing, and you people should stop doing it. I'm going to calm back down. Anyway, so anyway, once the gun's drawn, your knife at 15 feet, you're leaving, or you're leaving with a hole in your ass, Okay. Period. So, the odds that you will need your gun are very low to begin with. Just like the odds that eight shots will be better than six or 16 will be better than six are very, very low. But why do we carry a gun? For that one time. For that one time. And we all know that bad shit can pile up. Okay? So... What if those three dudes were on dope and didn't think that guy that pulled that gun out would use it? And he's got six shots. And let's say he's a good shot, he keeps his head, and he double taps all three of them in the chest. Okay. Sometimes guys get double topped in the chest and they don't go down. Sometimes they die 20 minutes later. But 
in the next 10 minutes, they can cause a lot of damage. And it happens. Even with something like a 357. There was a man, I remember the story very well when I was a kid, seeing it on um, like one of those daytime shows. That he was a martial arts guy. Guy pulls a gun out on him and shoots him. Point blank range in the chest. Doesn't hit him in the heart, but hits him in the, in the left side of the chest. Solid lung hit. The guy grabs the gun out of the guy's hand. Beats the shit out of him. Calls 911 and says, this guy's here. I got him on the ground, but he shot me, right? And, and just like beats the shit out of the guy to hopefully he'll lay there long enough for the cops. He's not going to wait for the cops. He's afraid he's going to die. He drives himself to the hospital. It's like two miles away with a 357 Magnum round in his freaking lung. And they were able to save him and all. It was a very serious injury, and he probably would have died. But he was able to go that far before anything else. So, if you ended up in a situation like that, Just because you hit your target doesn't mean that you've incapacitated your target. And sometimes it takes more than two or three rounds to put somebody down. And this is if everything goes right. So, is it worth the extra money, $200 more, for the semi-auto version of a 357? It's That, in the end, is up to you. Because we're taking a slice of a slice of a probability. But it still should be considered. And then what you're saying is, my belief is this is sufficient for the task at hand. Now, the other thing is, of course, reloading. And while I've seen people are pretty impressive with speed loaders and revolvers, it's it's not the same. And I'm the guy that says all the practice of the magazine swaps and all is probably excessive for civilians. But it depends. It depends. I have yet to have anybody meet my challenge and ever show me a place where a civilian in a response to a threat, ever did a mag swap, ever. I, I, I haven't had it. I'm not saying it ever happened. I'm saying no one's ever shown it to me yet. But I could see it happening. Imagine you were in that Orlando nightclub and you took cover. And you got a guy with a you know a rifle. Could you see maybe, in, in, let's say there was another armed citizen there and you guys are working together. Could you see expending enough firepower to do a mag swap? Possibly. So that's there. Now, that's that's the infinite slice of the tiny slice of the little slice. But it's still possible. So then so knowing all that doesn't lead you to the decision high capacity magazine. You know, Glock 19 high cap mag, you know, carry two extra mag. It doesn't lead you to that decision. It leads you to how much risk am I willing to accept? Where do I want to stop? Because I think for some people a revolver is a fantastic idea for a concealed carry gun. I think especially people that don't want to spend time at the range, that don't want to become really, really proficient. I think you should, but let's be honest. Some people, you know, they want to be able to shoot. They know that the gun works. They know how to take care of it, and they don't want to have anything in the way. And some of these, you know, double-action hammerless revolvers, they're, they're pull and shoot. As long as you know where the trigger is and point the gun in the right direction, it's going to work. And I think for some people, there's some people, um, I know some ladies, especially as they get older, kind of a little bit weak in the hands, have a hard time racking a slide, can still pull a trigger. So it's not a bad idea. And I mostly carry a 45, 1911. You know, it's not a high-capacity uh, gun. It's just not. It, you, you certainly could pick up, you know, a... Uh, you know, a double stack nine millimeter and have a lot more ammo. So, 
Why do I carry that? I'm comfortable with it, and I've done the risk analysis, and I've determined that it works for me. And that's how you always have to make that decision. When anybody starts telling anybody else they're wrong for their choice in concealed carry, you've just gone from advisor to idiot. Because you don't know that person. You don't know their life. You don't know their capabilities. You don't know their budget. You don't know their wants. You don't know their needs. They don't know their desires. You don't know their confidence level. You just don't. Why, why should I switch to a Glock when I shoot literally twice as accurate with a 1911? I can't come up with a good reason for that. And what some people would say, well, if you learn to shoot a Glock, I've tried. I just shoot a 1911 better. There's a reason they're so popular in competitive shooting. I'm just saying. Um, and I think it has, I've heard that, and I've never verified this, but I've heard it has a lot to do with uh, the shooter's wrist angle. That certain people have a natural angle one way and natural angle the other. And if you have that natural angle one way, you're going to shoot a Glock better than a 1911 pattern and, and vice versa. I don't know if that's true or not. I know it doesn't feel right in my hands. And I know one of the people I really respect, but just sometimes he's a stupid shit. James Jaeger says, yes, it does. You know, doesn't feel my hand right. Yes, it does. Okay, whatever. You know, and I think that kind of attitude plays way too big a role in the so-called experts in shooting. That you should find what's comfortable for you evaluate everything that fits your budget, your time, your, your, your needs, your desires, your capabilities, and then make that decision for yourself. And remember, it's not like a tattoo. If you carry the gun for a while and it doesn't carry the way you thought it was or whatever, you can always sell a gun. You can always get close to what you put into it if you sell it at the right time the right way. Um, you get back 70%, and you can make a change to something else. Or you can put it back in the drawer and just carry, carry something different. Most of us carry more or have more than one gun. Uh, I think that's two is one, one is none in the most uh, meaningful way ever. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Owen from South Texas. had a few comments on the government and elections. It's, to me, the most succinct, succinct way to say my point of view on government is government is a euphemism for slavery. And all black markets are created by government. Government? We don't need no stinking government. <laughs> anyway, my basic plan is, is just ignore them as much as I can. And on elections, I'm with you. You've got to be a total putz to, to be voting in national elections. However, I still do vote in my county elections because it's slightly important to me who the JP, the sheriff, and the constable are. I just leave all that other shit blank on the balance. And on my starry-eyed wish list for elections, I'd, I'd like to see the balance have after each list of candidates, a box for none of the above, and if none of the above gets more than 50%, then you have a new election, and none of the previous candidates are eligible to run, so <laughs> sort of permaculture, right, the problem is sort of kind of the solution. Hasta luego. Well, I have some thoughts on the uh, 50% policy and on elections in general, but I want to start out with something. Um, I hope when you hear me say I don't think you should vote, or I don't think, I don't ever even say I don't think you should vote. 
What I say is, I'm not voting, here's why. And if, if you're voting, I think you're doing it for cathartic reasons. And for those who don't know what the word cathartic means, it means it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you had an impact, but you really didn't. You really didn't accomplish anything. Your vote really didn't matter. Had you not voted, everything would have still happened. And what people say is, well, at least I know my voice was heard. Well, no, it wasn't. No one heard you. No one heard Joe Blow, John Smith, Debbie, you know, Debbie Smith, Mark Thompson. No one actually heard that you voted. No one gives a shit. Period. Now, your, your friend might because he voted the same way and thinks that you did good or because you voted a different way and he thinks you're the reason the other guy won or it's your fault or what have you. And it, it's all nonsense. But what I, I want you to understand is I don't begrudge anybody for voting. My wife um, registered to vote this year. I think she'd been registered in the past, but that's all been kind of missed and placed. And also she you know filled out her thing to get registered to vote, and she's going to go vote, vote, and she's going to go vote for Trump. And primarily because she's tired of everybody beating him up in the media, and she just cannot stomach Hillary Clinton. Okay, Do you think I have a negative view of my wife for that? Do you think I said, oh, you're stupid for voting? I said, if that's what you want to do, I think you should do it. And I was dead sincere. I'm never not sincere with my wife. So when I tell you the same thing, I'm sincere with you. I, here's personally how I feel. If your vote doesn't matter, and I don't think it does mathematically, and I don't think you can make the case to me that it does, then here's my point. Then how can I be upset with you for doing it? It would be like me being pissed off because you tossed a pebble in the freaking Grand Canyon. You're going to fill it up. No, you're not. More than that falls in every day from bird shit. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you you've made a horrible difference. Now, if you did it in the right place, I'd tell you you might have hurt somebody, but it's a pebble, so it's really not going to hurt somebody. It's not going to turn into a bullet and kill somebody. It's not. It's not. not. Big old rock, yeah, it's irresponsible and dangerous, and if it hits somebody, but as far as it just filling it up, it's dumb. And see, that's what they tell kids when they go visit the Grand Canyon. You, if we let everybody throw a rock, it would it would fill it up. Well, you should tell them it's the truth. There's no way to know who's down there riding a burrow or a, a canoe or something like that. You could kill somebody. So don't do that because it's stupid. But we don't tell kids the truth, right? Right? You tell kid don't you tell kids don't pee in the pool. Because it'll turn blue or purple or pink or whatever color you make up. So sooner or later the kid tries it and realizes it doesn't work. And it probably creates more kids peeing in the pool. Because you didn't tell them the truth. It's disgusting. We don't pee in pools. You're disgusting if you do that. So don't do it. You tell them something stupid like it'll turn the water pink. Yeah, that works. That's how voting is. right? You think it matters, so you do it. But, you know... The caller used the word you're a putz if you vote in the national elections. And then in his next words out of his mouth, but he votes in the local elections because he thinks it matters. Vote doesn't probably count there either. Mathematically, the results, I mean, you're going to have a hard time finding elections decided by a vote. Or even by a dozen votes. Here and there you'll find them, you know. And if you live in a place that small where you can make a difference, go for it, I guess. But in general, for me, it doesn't make a difference. doesn't mean I fault you for it. And I really wanted to make sure of that. Now, kind of here's my thoughts on the election in general. My problem, when I hear all of the negative stuff about Hillary and, and Trump, is no one's actually talking about the negative things about both of them that actually matter. Instead of talking about, well, whose policy is better for America with the Middle East and who's going to bomb the right people, why, why aren't we asking, why are we still jacking around in the Middle East? You know, why, why aren't we having that discussion? 
Instead of talking about, well, whose policy is best to deal with illegal immigration, just naturalizing everybody with amnesty like Clinton wants to do, or building a wall in, 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 in Mexico, why aren't we having a national discussion? Why do we have this problem? Why do we have this problem? Why do the American people get upset that illegal aliens come to America? Because they take jobs. That's not why people get upset. People are not upset with Mexicans. It's all bullshit. You go find me an illegal Mexican immigrant holding a job that you want that you can't get. Go ahead. Do it. Show me one. Right? What people are pissed off about, and whether you want to admit it or not, it's what people are most pissed off about is we have illegal immigrants that come in here and collecting welfare. And being, they're, they're being paid for on our dime. And then, you know, we're having all these, these things where they're being able to vote and, and have their opinion in our elections, right? When they're not even a citizen, it's illegal. And people are pissed because it's illegal and they have to follow the law, so why doesn't everybody else? These are the reasons. So why are we discussing all of these problems? Why are we just saying, he's a racist because he wants to build a wall? This is a stupid argument. Walls? Listen to me very carefully. If you think wanting to build a wall in Mexico is a racist idea, very carefully listen. Listen, 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 listen. Walls are not racially permeable. Walls don't let white people in and keep Mexicans out. Walls keep people out who aren't supposed to be there, no matter what color they are, no matter what race they are. You know, people are pissed off about illegal immigrants because they come here and then they put down the country that they came to and they put down the ideals of the country they came to. Why are they doing that? Why are we having that discussion? Because, see, these actually get to the roots of the problem. But why is the main pitch from Donald Trump is Hillary sucks and the main pitch from Hillary Clinton is Donald Trump sucks? Because that's what America expects. The, the, the problem with the election beyond your vote not counting is it's not even solving the problem. Trump points out the horrendous national debt, but he has no plan to lower it at all. Hillary Clinton basically says the national debt doesn't matter which is ludicrous and stupid. But instead, it gets reduced down to he wants tax breaks for the rich and she wants to tax the middle class. Apparently she said that yesterday. I think it was a misspeak, and I think overreacting to her misspeak is the same as overreacting to Trump's. It's stupid and nonsensical. That's the problem with the elections. They're based on stupidity and nonsense. Even when the candidates are saying concrete, tangible things, The coverage is still based on stupidity and nonsense. You know what? I don't give a shit that Donald Trump insulted the, the, the person, the, the, the Muslim couple that spoke at the DNC. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to the national interest of the country. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I don't even think it was that big of an insult. You can't just go out and accuse somebody and say you never read the Constitution and not expect for them to fire back at you because your son died and talk about you sacrifice. Let me tell you something. When you lose somebody who serves, it's a horrific loss. But the true sacrifice was made by the person who put their hand up and served. Parents don't send their children to war. In our country, young people choose to serve, and politicians send them to war. And the one that made the choice is the one that made the choice to sacrifice. And, and to walk around and claim some sort of aura, some coat around you, and claim to be a gold star family. What the hell does that even mean? How do we know these people are gold star whatever? I don't care. It doesn't matter. But we've been talking about it for a week. For a week. And they say Trump keeps talking about it. Well, because they keep asking about it. Because this is what your media wants you to pay attention to. 
This is the problem with our elections. They're not about issues. They never have been in my lifetime. They're popularity contests. You know what? The way people get elected in America today to high public office is the same way they get elected in elections for student council and frickin' high school. People vote for the prom queen and the prom, queen, prom king. That's who they vote for. And at least in school, those people are actually popular. In our case, we vote out of hatred. It's a nonsensical system. But if you want to participate in it, you're just where I was 15 years ago. I'm not going to put you down for it. You're just where I was eight years ago. I'm not going to put you down for it. I understand. You want to feel that you have some control. But in the end, the only thing you have control over is the things you actually touch, put your hands on, and influence. And it ain't Donald Trump, it ain't Hillary Clinton, and it damn sure ain't Fox News or CNN. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Vincent from the Catskills Mountains. Question. How to compost soil that has been used to grow microgreens in shallow trays? Details are... I picked up the idea of the small microgreens business from your show, and today I got my first customer. So I want to be able to compost and reuse the uh, pricey, high-quality soil I use. What should I do? Thanks for your energy. Okay, just for those real quick that are not familiar with the microgreens growing process, they're generally grown in flat trays that are only uh, maybe an inch deep. And you put a very high-quality soil to grow a high-quality green, like fox forest is one that a lot of people use. And it's just an incredible soil. The fox forest, I almost don't think you want to eat it. It's, it's, it's so badass. And you put that in your tray and you use a little tamper. You usually make one out of a piece of plywood to kind of flatten it down and make it smooth. You put your seeds on it. You lay usually paper towel over top and you stack your trays until they start to sprout. And then eventually you put them under lights and you grow them out over a few days to a week into your product. And then you cut them with a very sharp knife. You process them a lot like I talked about processing salad greens. You package them and you sell them to your customers. Or you package them and you, you eat them for, your, uh, for yourself in your home if you're just growing them for yourself. This leaves a block of soil that's very much like it looks like sod that somebody cut the grass flush. Right, the, the the soil is now a mat of roots because you've grown the greens at a density way too tight of a density for those plants to ever mature. That's part of how you kind of stunt them into this little salad green. And you, if you've ever been to a nice restaurant, they put a little mix of greens on your plate or something, or garnish your burger with it or something like that. That's microgreens. So that that's the product, and the waste is basically stubble and roots and the dirt. Okay. You don't really have to do much at all to quote-unquote compost that. The roots and, and shoots will kind of wither to nothing in just a few days if you stop watering them or if you break them up in any way. And you So you have a couple ways you could do this. One, just dump them into a container and kind of tear it up, right? And then just use that as compost, as soil amendment, whatever, just straight away. That's one way. Another way is you could actually incorporate it into a composting system. So if you do something like in the MSB, I have these compost bins that I build out of garbage cans, rubber-made garbage cans. You drill some holes in the top and bottom. You put a pipe down the middle of them, and you put your food waste in there and what have you over time. And they basically, when, when one gets full, you start filling the second one up. When the second one's full, the first one's about half a volume. 
and you dump it into the third one, and then you start filling that one. You just keep rolling on that way. And it's a long, slow compost. It is not a compost like a hot, fast, multi-turn compost. You're only turning it two times, and it takes a long time, but it's for a small amount over time. You could dump your trays into a system like that, though if you're doing a lot of business, it would fill very quickly. But it's already mostly there anyway. So what you could do is create like a big bin and just throw them in there. If you have poultry, they love to eat it. So you could basically create an area where your poultry can feed on it that's somewhat contained, but the birds can get in and out, and just train them that whenever you're dumping to come there, they'll tear it all up. They'll eat all those roots out and just kind of continue to rake the dirt into piles over time, and they'll come work it for you. And then you can do slow composting, throwing waste products on top of that and build it into multiple piles and, and go on from there. So it, it's really up to you if you want to make it a process or if you just want to just use it again. Most, Mostly, I believe, you could reseed those and get a second crop. The problem is it's a high-dollar crop, and you risk a lot more potential for mold. What I will tell you is I've learned when you're doing pea tendrils, pea shoots, so you're doing like sweet peas, and they grow to about you know two, three inches tall, and you cut those. When you cut those the first time, cut them, stick them right back under the lights, keep watering them, you'll get at least a second crop out of the pea tendrils. Everything else you're kind of done. So that's 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 all I'd say is dump it somewhere and 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 don't don't think you have to compost it to the level of you know like your your kitchen scraps unless you're incorporating that thing with it. Okay. The other thing to realize is that soil is still super soil. Because those greens have used so little of the nutrient available in there. So even if you just break them up, kind of wet them down, churn them up, and just set it aside and then just use it for some other application, you don't have to do any composting at all. It'll be fine. It'll be absolutely fine and have plenty of nutrient because you are buying a premium product to create a premium product, but a lot of the premium of the, of the soil is still there. So definitely use it for something. I think what John Dowie does is he just lets his, his quail tear it up. And, uh, you know, scoop it up and, and use it in the garden and what have you, mixed in with their droppings and all. Um, if I was doing microgreen production, I was going to, and I decided I just didn't have the time for it, uh, that's what I would do. I would just take the trays in and let the quail hammer it out. Uh, let's take another one. What is the most likely catastrophe to occur? Yeah, I edited that small part out of the call because the next thing was the guy saying his name and his phone number. I... I would really strongly caution you guys not to do that. Um, I always try to screen calls 100%, but sometimes I listen to a call and go, it's good enough. I get the gist of it. And if you write, if you say your full name and, and number in the call, there's like, just like the handgun thing we said earlier, there's a 99% chance I'll catch it and either won't use it because it's unusable or I'll remove it. Uh, but there's always a 1% chance it'll slip through. And a lot of you guys would be all mad at me. Well, don't do it. Don't say anything on a call that you don't want on the air. Um, and the think line is for the show. So I'm assuming this is for the show. If you call me and leave me a message and tell me to call you back, unless I know you personally, I'm not calling you back. That's not what this number is for, just, just so you know. But I'm taking this as a question for the show, and I think there's a lot of people that have this question in their hearts and minds, and they come to prepping because they're scared of something, and then they start to get educated as to all the things that can go wrong. And I think it's a scenario very much like medical school for doctors. What I've been told by a lot of doctors is there is no medical student that is not utterly convinced that they have cancer by the time that they're done with the cancer segment of their training. 
When they learn all the symptoms and all the risks and everything else, almost every medical student is convinced that there's some sort of cancer that they might have. And we can get into this with disaster scenarios, too, that uh, once you realize, well, the electrical grid's not quite as, as well off as we're led to believe, and there still is a potential for nuclear war, and uh, there's biological agents and chemical agents, and holy shit, we can have a chemical, uh, I mean, sorry, a coronal mass ejection and, uh, from the sun and shut the grid down. And, I mean, you just keep going, and, you know, the right, right terrorists got a hold of a couple nuclear bombs and detonated them. They could shut down the grid with an EMP, and that's way oversold, by the way. It's not likely you need a, a, a serious uh, weapon to be able to do that. You're not going to do that with a suitcase nuke or, or what have you, um, and all these things. But if you listen to the show for a long time, the most likely catastrophe to happen to you is the one that only affects you. Okay? That's, that's the truth. We plan for disaster based on the order of probability with, it, with an acknowledgement of the impact scale. Okay, so what that means is is the number of people affected, the larger the impact scale of a disaster, a comet hits the earth and destroys all mankind. No amount of prepping is going to help you. Everybody's dead. I uh, hope you drink a beer and watch the fire as the, the night lights up and enjoy your last seconds with a loved one if that's going to happen. Okay, fine. Um, massive impact scale, probability so low, you shouldn't even be worried about it at all. Because if it does happen, there's nothing you can do anyway, and the odds of it happening are so damn low, you're more likely to get hit by a truck. Getting hit by a truck, that actually happens to somebody every day. I saw a girl when I was uh, 21 years old. I had a job when I first got out of the Army. I went out to lunch and uh, came back, and I was just standing around talking to another guy. We had a few minutes left before lunch. We're standing right near an intersection at 121 and Corporate Drive uh, in Louisville, Texas. And I saw a girl on a bike going across the intersection with the lights proper for her to do that. She had the crossing lights. A 10-wheeler ran the red light, hit her, drove her body through the air, um, I would say 25, 30 feet. She flew through the air, impacted uh, a phone pedestal, like the phone line pedestal, kind of the slim ones, and broke it. She was obviously dead if not on impact with the vehicle, she was definitely dead on impact with that. I witnessed that happen. Um, even though she was right, situational awareness may have saved her life because we all saw it coming and she didn't. So the most likely catastrophe is the one that impacts just you. A tornado that impacts your neighborhood is more likely than a economic collapse that hits the whole country and brings us, you know, below the level of the Great Depression. So what's the most likely catastrophe? The one that affects the least amount of people. Your spouse dying. A diagnosis with cancer. And it makes sense then to begin our preparedness with these things in mind. Individual disasters. A job loss. Right? A job loss that attaches to crushing debt that you can no longer pay and send you into bankruptcy. So you haven't just had a job loss, now you have a bankruptcy on top of it. You lose your home, you can't buy a new one because you've gone bankrupt, and you end up living in a really terrible place because you weren't prepared. That's a likely catastrophe. These are the most likely catastrophes. So we prepare for that, we get our shit together, and then we expand out to what are the things that could affect my neighborhood, and we prepare for those. And then we expand out to what are the things that can affect like the whole city 
or the county or the town, regional, small region. We prepare for that. Then we expand out to like the whole state or the multi-state area, region, a large region of the United States. Prepare for that. And then we say, okay, national, global, what's left? And we, we finish up with those preps. That's how we prepare, logically and rationally. And by the time you're prepared to deal with an ice storm that knocks your neighborhood without power for a week, you're largely prepared as best as most people ever can logistically, economically, and from a spatial standpoint, how much space budget you have to put stuff, as you're ever going to be for you know, global economic collapse, rise of the zombies, uh, nuclear war, whatever. There's only so much we can do, honestly. There really is. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want to expend the resources that can make our life wonderful, foolishly, for the sliver of a slice of a microbe of a chance that maybe this would go wrong, and even what we've done may not save us anyway? Or do we want to prepare practically and pragmatically for the things that are likely to happen in our lives? What's the most likely catastrophe that can happen? For preppers, the most likely catastrophe is often focusing so much on the extreme that they're actually vulnerable to what they consider mundane. And the person that thinks they're prepared for the apocalypse isn't prepared to lose their job or deal with a cancer diagnosis or deal with a fire that burns their home to the ground. That's the most likely catastrophe. Let's take another one. Damn you, Jack Spirico. This is Jake Robinson. Your item of the day is bankrupt JP. <laughs> I bought the Calachary peppers, peppercorn, and of course I had to have a pepper mill, right? So I had to buy one of those. I bought your cheese knife um, and a slew of other stuff. Anyway, I can't believe there's so much good shit that I've been living without. You got to stop. Uh, I do have a recommendation though. If you want to save, want to do service to your members or save money, you might want to contact the person, the seller on Amazon that you're about to do the item of the day. It won't work every time, but some of them you could contact and say, hey, I've got a huge listening audience. I'm about to recommend your product. Would you be willing to offer a discount coupon? They can literally generate a, a specific coupon that would be just good for your audience and you would probably have to leave the coupon and a link on your website and they typically they uh, put an expiration on them so they, they don't just keep getting uh, discounted buys over the years but they could uh, they could offer a discount and, and they would be excited to possibly do that and I know it would cut into your revenue a little bit but you would serve your audience the other thing you might ask is, can you get a super discount if the uh, buyer would be willing to go on and leave a review? Sometimes they want more reviews, and they might be willing to give a 50% discount or even more if they knew that there was buyers that were happy with the product willing to give an honest review for a discount. Anyway, that's just a recommendation. I just thought of that. Damn you. 
Well, first, I wanted to just say thank you to everybody like Jake who's who's purchased items through Amazon, whether the items of the day or you you know you bought dog diapers or something. Somebody bought doggy diapers, and thank you. All right, you know, uh, because you were going to buy the doggy diapers anyway, but you took a second and said, "I like the show. I'm going to go through tspaz.com and 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 Jack can get credit for my business on Amazon." I could, I could do that for somebody else. I could not do it for anybody. But since I listen to the show and I, I benefit, I'm going to do it here. So so thank you. Those are the items of the day. Please buy them because you want them, not because you think you're helping me. I put those stuff out for two reasons. One, uh, actually three. First, I've always wanted to have a catalog of Amazon items for people when they say, what do you recommend? Just go here and have that as a business unit. And it was always overwhelming to me to think about where am I going to find the time to sit down and put together a catalog of 600 items. So elephant, one bite at a time, once a day for two years, and it's it's built. So so it just made sense that way. Um, the other reason I do it is because, and I thought some of you that are entrepreneurs might like to hear a little bit about how Amazon's affiliate program works because I've gotten questions from you guys about using it for your own thing, and I've, up till now I've handled it directly with some basic advice. It takes a lot to make it worth your time, but if you can get it happening regularly, even a little is worth it because... Well, if it's 200 bucks a month, it's 200 bucks you didn't have. It's passive income if you if it's attached to another opportunity. Um, but Jake said, for instance, that if I get an, uh, a seller to discount their product with a coupon, it hurts my revenue. It doesn't hurt my revenue at all. It hurts the seller's revenue. The Amazon affiliate program works like this. When the seller sells, you get paid based on a payment tier, for volume and products. So some products are low margin, like electronics. So on electronics, you make 4% flat. But on many other products, you make as much as 8.5% if you sell a lot. Right? It starts at 4 and it goes up. And it's based on individual items, not dollars. And last month, I was able to actually hit the top of the payment, which was 8.5% on the items that pay full. And a lot of other stuff, just so you understand, a lot of stuff doesn't if you're getting excited about doing this yourself. So the other thing is, As long as you go to Amazon through any of my links, your business counts for me. So another reason I do the item of the day, this is part of the business model, and I, I think I'm one of the few entrepreneurs that will tell his customers his business model in full and not hold anything back. So I hope that's appreciated. My feeling is if I put out an interesting, compelling item every day in a review, that many of you will say, well, I'm going to go look at that on Amazon. I'm going to go see what the reviewers say. I'm going to go learn more about it. I'm going to You know, maybe I'm not going to buy it, but I'm going to just take a look at it. If you do that, and within the next day, on the same device, your phone, your tablet, your PC, whatever, as long as you haven't cleared your cookies or whatever, and you go there and buy dog diapers, I get credit for the business, even if you don't go back and go through TSPAS. So my hope is to increase the amount of people listening to the show that go to Amazon through any of my links So I get greater participation in buy what you were going to buy anyway. Okay, so that's a little about the business model. Now, on the discounts, I've worked on a couple already, and I've been unable to close the deal. Um, I'm starting to form relationships with different people. Um, because I feature an item, and especially small businesses, individual sellers that are selling through Amazon versus Amazon corporate sales, um, they notice You know, they notice when I feature their book and they've been selling 20 copies a month and they sell 30 copies in a day. They notice, you know. But do they have enough to make it make it work? 
And the way I get their attention is you guys buy it. So I'm getting the discount after it's been bought. So I've been trying to find companies that have product that you might buy more than one thing from and form relationships with them. And then this is how I'd hurt my revenue. If I can get that to work, a lot of these people sell through Amazon and direct. Okay? And it's much easier for them to offer the discount in a direct sale than an Amazon sale. So if I find someone that sells direct, that sells for the same price or less than they sell on Amazon direct, and I can get a discount like that, and I'm working on a few, but no promises yet, then I can take that over to MSB and increase the value to MSB members, whether it be through Amazon or not. If it's through Amazon, obviously I'll still sell through my link because I'll get the affiliate commission on top of it. But if I have to take the business direct to the manufacturer or the producer to get you the discount, I'll do it. Because that's more important to me, that I get you the discount, so I promise to get you in MSB. So that puts me into a revenue cycle where I have two primary revenue units, MSB and, and the Amazon program. So if one falters a bit, the other one picks up the slack. This is sound business principles without really doing that much extra. And all the blogging I'm doing for the Amazon product of the day is building that catalog. And it'll probably be about two years of it, and it'll probably put about 600 items, and then it might become the item of the week, you know, because, I mean, how much can I do this with? But I'm getting some good ideas from you, and, and guys, keep, keep them coming. I got an idea from John Dowie. I might put Dorothy on this. He said, why don't you make one of your items of the, of the day a week? So once a week, make an item of the day a first aid item. And then people can buy a first aid item every week to put in their kit, and by the end of a year, you have a well-built-out kit. And you've piecemealed it together over time. Sounds like a fantastic idea. But that requires, like, I'm erratic, guys. For all the credit you guys give me for being so organized, like I was saying earlier, and, and so time management conscious, I'm erratic. I like, I, today's product is a great product, for instance. It's a stoneware pan. And Keith Snow mentioned these pans a couple weeks ago in an episode. The next day I got an email from somebody who said, hey, They make one version of this pan in Germany and one in Italy. They're both expensive. You can't get the ones in Italy on Amazon. You have to buy them through like specialty stores. But the one that, that's the Italian one, the Monera, they make one called Greystone. It's the same pan, but they have a U.S. brand, and they ship from U.S. warehouses. It's on Amazon. It's like 25 30% less. So I ordered one, and it came in the mail. And today I'm thinking, what am I going to review on Amazon as I'm turning my eggs and my bacon in my, my new Greystone pan. Well, I'm going to do that. So that's, I'm not all organized with this shit. I don't know what tomorrow's item of the day is going to be yet. Sometimes on a weekend I sit down and come up with two or three for the week so I'm ahead of the game. But a lot of times it's just in the morning I look through my order history, I look through my house, and I, I pick that item. So to do something that structured with as time sensitive as I am, trying not to burn myself, I'd need Dorothy to do that. But I, I think, you know, she's a, a person who was a nurse for over 20 years, that's her level of expertise. And I think she might be really interested in it. And what we might do is find the right pack first, buy the pack, and then start building the kit. If you'd be interested in that, I'd love to hear it in the show notes because in the comments, because if a lot of, or email me, you know, TSPC, the subject line, if there's a ton of people interested in that, that, that gives us more incentive to do it. Um, but I hope that you guys see this, because I know I started this about two months ago, this Amazon thing. I'm trying to make it, yes, a business unit for the company, and it is. It, 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 it really has, has done well. Um, but I've always been leery of affiliate sales. 
If you guys look, for eight years I did no affiliate sales at all. A little bit through Harmony House because I really liked the product, uh, the dehydrated vegetables, and it was just there. So I, I threw that on there. But I, I never pushed it. And it was because I always wanted the MSV to be pure. If there was a product in the MSV, I wasn't getting a kickback on it. You know there's nothing in there I make a dime on. I make all of my revenue on your membership fees. And that way, I've, I've had it before, guys. Come, people come to me, we'll, we'll give you 20% for every sale. Um, can you give my listeners 20% discount? Yeah, here's how MSV works. Work it out. Get them in there. I don't want the money. Give it to my listeners because now I can sell more memberships. It's a service-oriented thing. So when I looked at Amazon and decided, well, if I'm going to actually make a business unit out of this, I've got to figure out how to make this service-oriented the way the, comp, the, 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 the podcast has been since day one. The listeners first. Even though sometimes an asshole, I am. I know I am. Sometimes I'm a jerk. Sometimes I, I, I say things that make you upset or mad. I still serve you. That's, that's, that's my belief. It's core. It's intrinsic to me. And I can't do something where I'm not serving the people that are providing for me. I can't. So when I came up with item of the day, I'm like, well, Jack, you have so much stuff that you really do use every day. And you have opinions as to why. And when people send you things that are products they say are good products, if it fits your life, you usually buy one and try it, and you're being honest and forthcoming about limitations and what it can and can't do, and you can and you teach well. So you can use the product to teach thinking, to teach recipes, to teach organization, to teach you know preparedness. And then if the person buys it or not, they still get something out of reading it. And that's why I decided to do it. So I hope you guys understand, you know, that's why That's why I do T-SPAS the way that I do it. So real quick, T-SPAS for new listeners. If you go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, you'll go to my a page on my site. And then you can see the item of the day. You can see all my reviews, or you can just click and go to Amazon and do your shopping as normal. It supports the show, and I really, really freaking appreciate it. Somebody bought a freaking bed frame yesterday. I mean, that was, that was awesome. And they probably would have bought it anyway, but... You know, that was a nice commission. That was like 45 bucks or something. So, you know, thank you. And, uh, and, and I appreciate it. But please buy the stuff that makes sense for you. Don't buy something on Amazon that's $10 less at the store just to help me. Go to the store and buy the item at the store if it's $10 less. But if you're going to buy it anyway, or if the items I recommend make sense to you, you know, get them on Amazon and man, get a Prime membership. And if you go through my link and buy Prime, you know, I get credit for Prime. It's like five bucks or something. But my Prime membership, if everybody was like me, Amazon would be crying right now. Um, they really would. With that, uh, we won't talk anymore about T-SPAS today. But just, again, thank you to everyone that supports the show. If you want to support the show by being a member, um, I do have a lot of great discounts for you guys. Uh, 68, I think, is the number of companies I've arranged discounts with over the years um, for you guys. And if you go to the MSB and log in, if you're a member, click on benefits, you see them all. And uh, I also have free content for you. I have free videos for you. I have all kinds of cool stuff in the MSB. And uh, you can get out all by becoming a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more, and uh, you can sign up there. And I, I appreciate all of you who have done that. And I appreciate every one of you that's told other people about the show. That brings us to our closing song of the day. This is an old one. Released in 1964. Hey, gee, that's in another song, isn't it? My, my, my pops picked the place up for uh, 1500 bucks back in... No, that's 1954, I think he says. Maybe it is 1964. I don't know. This one, though, is not country at all. This is uh, kind of folk pop. 
Simon Garfunkel, Sound of Silence. Now, if you're under 30, you might you might think that the Sound of Silence is a song by a, a band called Disturbed. Uh, they released that last year. It's actually kind of a cool version. It's a, It really gets in touch with kind of the, the dark side of this song that starts out with Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. I'm not putting it down, but it's it's not the original. This is the original. Um, I think anybody over 30's probably heard this song a lot, and, and probably a lot of you under 30, too. I don't want to create an artificial divide there. Um, but I've always loved this song. Absolutely always loved this song. I'm also someone that kind of watched Saturday Night Live from the very beginning, and uh, I think the very first episode, the musical guest on Saturday Night Live was Simon Garfunkel. Uh, they definitely are on a lot in the early years of uh, Saturday Night Live. So I've always had an affinity for them just from that alone, just because it's that long of a history. And being a little kid and liking music like that, I guess it's something not normal, but I was a little kid that liked music like this. And um, I usually go deep into these meanings of these songs, and this song has an overriding meaning that's, I think if you just listen to it, you get, you get that. But... Good music, good poetry, and all good music is good poetry, has more than one interpretation. I'd like to share with you one from uh, a stanza in this song. He says, uh, And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that the voices never share, no one dare disturb the sound of silence. And there's... Tons of meaning there that fits, I think, the general interpretation of this song. But I want to point out that what I take here is people remain silent when they should speak and speak when they should remain silent and listen. That we all have the ability to to provide wisdom to others and to speak when, when our voice needs to be heard, whether it's to help or to prevent something from happening. And it is in those instances often, the show What Would You Do springs to mind, that many people see something happening and they say nothing because they don't want to disturb it. They don't want to mess it up. And we should have boldness and courage to pragmatically and with the right attitude so we don't play the hero and get ourselves killed, speak when we need to be heard. And there are other, that since everybody has that capacity to speak with wisdom, then... That means everybody should be heard, and there's times we need to shut up and hear what other people have to say, because they may be imparting wisdom that we need at that moment. And I believe that the way the universe works is, a lot of times, if you're receptive, that person that imparts what you need to hear shows up when you need them. Even if you're infinitely more intelligent than that person, they still may know something you don't. But the big one, people writing songs that the voices never share. See, to me... Here, metaphorically, the song is not necessarily a song. It's creativity. It could be a song. It could be a poem. It could be a great work in life. It could be an accomplishment that someone holds in their mind or their heart. One day I'm going to, and they never do. The song never is heard. It's never sung. It never goes from the mind to the sheet to the instrument to the vocal. Whether or not that's a literal song or whether that's building a business or gaining your health back, or getting up and accomplishing anything, or playing a sport, or whatever it is, or taking that vacation to that place that you've always wanted to go but always found a reason not to. The song never gets sung because we don't have the courage to stand up and believe in ourselves. 
You know? Fools, I say, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. Don't let my words of encouragement that I bring you guys every day saying, yes, you can get shit done. Don't let them fall silent like raindrops into the wells of silence. Do something with them. Like I said earlier this week, every day at least one person listens to this show and we talk about something and they say, that's something I can do. And for some of them, it changes their lives. I don't want to go Zig Ziglar here or some crap. Anthony Robbins, that's not who I am. I'm not that type of a motivational speaker. But I believe that we all have that greatness. We all have songs to be written and sung within us. And it's up to us to believe it. And sometimes we need somebody else to point it out. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed By the flash of a neon light It split the night the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never share said I, you do not know Silence like a cancer grows Hear my words that I might teach you Take my arms that I might reach you But my words like silent raindrops fell And echo Flashed out its warning In the words that it was forming And the sign said the words of the prophets Are written on the subway walls Ten
gentleman paused and whispered. 